Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Keon Williams. The Hammer Museum is presenting Hammer Project's Keon Williams, the artist's first solo museum presentation. It's up through August 28th. The show features Williams' new installation, Between Starshine and Clay, a work that features earth taken from sites that are familial or that hold black American histories, and sculptural forms that reveal or refer to the human body. The exhibition was curated by Aaron Cristoval. Williams is also included in Black Atlantic, a public art fund exhibition at Brooklyn Bridge Park in New York. The exhibition, which was curated by Hugh Hayden and Daniel S. Palmer, was motivated by an exploration of transatlantic diaspora. It includes Williams' 2022 sculpture Ruins of Empire, a reimagining of Thomas Crawford's Statue of Freedom, which was installed atop the U.S. Capitol Dome in 1863. The full-size plaster model for Freedom is in the Capitol Visitor Center in Washington, D.C., Black Atlantic is on view through November 27th. Williams is in another show. 52 Artists, a Feminist Milestone at the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut. The exhibition, which was curated by Amy Smith-Stewart and is on view through January 8th, 2023, showcases work by artists in the Aldridge's 1971-26 Contemporary Women Artists show, augmented by work by 26 female-identifying or non-binary emerging artists. On the second segment, Paul Farber. But first, Keon Williams, after the break. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. On view at the Getty Center through October 28th, the fascinating new exhibition Working Together, the Photographers of the Kamoingi Workshop, depicts black life during the 1960s and 1970s through an artistic lens. The photographs of the Kamoingi Workshop capture unique portraits of music legends like Miles Davis, Grace Jones, and Mahalia Jackson, moments in the civil rights movement, and artful abstractions often printed in dark tones that evoke the unsettling era in which they were made. Join Getty for the first major retrospective presenting the work of a collaborative chapter of American photography. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, The work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bowers' experimentation with a wide range of mediums and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. Keon Williams, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. The primary material within Between Starshine and Clay, which is the work at the Hammer, is dirt. So we'll talk more about where you source your dirt in a moment. But what brought you to, I guess, first (laughs) being interested in dirt? Sounds much more insulting when I say it out loud than when I typed it in my notes. (laughs) What, What got you interested in dirt and what brought you to using it as a material within your work? The first artwork that I in which I used Earth as a primary material was entitled Unearthing. And it was a performance piece in which I sort of buried myself in a mound of earth and like waist high and appeared to be emerging or growing out of the soil, which I had sourced from an unrecognized burial ground of enslaved Africans in New York City that is in the Bowery area not far, actually in the same kind of area where the new museum is located. And I didn't know it at the time, but what compelled me to both touch the earth, but also to work with earth site specifically was this idea that earth holds history, it holds memory. In particular, it holds memory and history that isn't or cannot be represented or remembered in traditional historical documents because of, you know, historical erasure or various reasons. And so one reason I began to work consistently with Earth was because of this conceptual idea of it being an alternative archive for Black life, for queer life, again, the lives of people who are not represented in traditional historical documents. And so that's one kind of broad conceptual entry point. And then another entry point is where speaks to like my own family's sort of experience in the U.S. And so I was born in North New Jersey. My grandmother migrated to New York and later New Jersey from North Carolina where her and her family were sharecroppers. And I remember on our trips back to the plantation where she grew up at in rural North Carolina, one of the most vivid memories I have is my grandmother like pulling over on dirt roads and with this sense of like exuberance and excitement and wonder, telling me stories of growing up cultivating, you know, various crops, cantaloupe, melons, vegetables. And that was like a strong, you know, sense of pride and also like memories from her childhood that, you know, she shared with me, the few of them that she did share, in which she articulated and had this sense of reverence for the land of like touching and working with the earth. And, you know, that sense of reverence for the land I also witnessed and, you know, her gardening practice, she always maintained and continues to maintain, you know, and despite living in, having lived in really big urban metropolitan cities, she always maintains a garden that like, you know, has various kinds of like vegetables, arugula, kale, she's growing tomatoes right now. And so she really inspired in me this, again, a sense of reverence and like working the land and growing one's own food and cultivating this like relationship and a a sense of self that like observes as in in tune with like 
the the natural world and the seasons, but that transcendent and exuberant sort of experience or relationship is also deeply tethered to the sort of historical and systemic violence that has shaped American life and in particular Black American life, and that is the history of sharecropping and chattel slavery. And so one of the reasons why my grandmother and her family left North Carolina was to escape the very brutal and impoverished system of sharecropping. And so there too is this deep history of both trauma and transcendence that I believe Black people have with, or that Americans have with, you know, the land we inhabit. And those sort of complicated and varied sort of entry points are what continue to like compel me to return to earth and dirt as material, as metaphor, as sites of inquiry, as places through which to experiment and, you know, as questions about the sort of foundational origin stories of America. Is it important to you where you get dirt from, and does that vary from project to project? For my own personal practice and kind of the mythology of my own practice, like what sort of compels me, it matters, but it doesn't because America is sort of shaped by settler colonialism and chattel slavery. So anywhere you go, you know, is a site through which, you know, peoples have been dispossessed or displaced. And so I guess like the overarching or like the larger project is sort of grappling with these larger questions of settler colonialism, chattel slavery, systems of extraction, and like land extraction being a part of it that are embedded in every aspect, in every point of the American landscape. But I do, I am inspired by like visiting specific sites and collecting earth from different sites. Because there's something about the process, right, that energizes me and that ultimately leads to like, you know, what I end up creating and that leads to the artwork. So I guess I'll say that the process, one of the really central parts of my process is like traveling to a site that has a history that intrigues me and just walking and being in the environment and like sensing the environment. I travel a lot to historical sites that now have some type of like state sanctioned or institutionally sanctioned, like didactic around the history of the site. And so I'm often like responding to that didactic so like obviously like I'm reading sort of what an institution might write about a particular location and then I'm like being in it and trying to like sense a sort of subterranean if you will presence or get presence and part of that process for me is quite literally like getting my hands in the earth touching it you know having this physical and haptic and embodied experience that for me is a source of like a way of forging connection 
And then sometimes, often I bring some of that earth to my studio and, you know, kind of from there I'm compelled. I'm either like, either create forms based off of the, like, you know, the, the landscape for like sculptural installations. Or sometimes I just like bring it to the studio and it becomes kind of what it needs to become. And so I guess to answer your question, site specificity matters as a part of like my process of like being in the world, engaging the world, going to different sites, walking, touching earth as process and as like sensing, sensing, like as a way of like opening myself up to the world, which I think as artists, that's kind of like what we do, we respond to the world around us. And so that's kind of what I do to, to open myself up and then come back to the studio and, you know, alchemize and try and like transmute all of that data experience that I've picked up. I've got one more question about the foundations of your practice before we get more specific. You, you did an interview with Aaron Cristoval in the gallery publication that the Hammer published to accompany the exhibition there. And it seems like in every darn answer, you cited the importance of a residency or a research trip to Virginia, to California, to wherever, to the development, not just of individual works, but to the development of your entire practice. And I think the thing that really came through that interview is that when you have a residency, you aren't sitting on a chair in an indoor studio, but that you're everywhere but that studio, everywhere outside. And it got me wondering how you approach a residency or a research trip. You know, when you're when you're in a different or new place, how do you approach or think through what it is you want to do in that place and find in that place and be in that place? When I'm in a new place, I I try and find three places first. And this is it doesn't matter where I am. I like try and find like the main like the main street or like the the town center, if you will. So like a big city. Most residencies I do are in more like remote rural places. I try and find like the center of a city. And when I'm going to the center of the city, I'm specifically looking for a library, like the public library. And the public library, the downtown area, which generally is where like government buildings are housed. And I'm interested in those places in particular, libraries, government buildings, you know, post offices and city or state or federal buildings because the architecture of those places kind of reveal something about, like, they communicate something about the city, its history, and libraries in particular because I get kind of like a cross-section of like the composition of who lives in the city and that is useful because I'm often always interested in questions of like diaspora displacement belonging and libraries or places that people who live and inhabit a city frequent like libraries or post offices give me that sense of like oh this is who lives here and that becomes like a springboard for me to then be like ask about questions about how places are founded, how communities are founded, and, you know, where people traveled from to arrive at a new place that they call home. I look for a body of water, river, a lake, a coast, bodies of water, 
being near bodies of water are really important because they similarly like tell reveal things about a city right bodies of water typically are like or were and continue to be like major transportation hubs but particularly in like the 19th century and bodies of water and where they meet the land are like these fascinating zones for me like that kind of contact point in the interview that i did with with aaron i shared that like it was through watching the pacific ocean just crash against the coast and carve out these large sort of stone islands is what compelled me to like begin wanting to give shapes to earth and so I guess I look towards, I look at like that context zone where earth and land meet, be it at a river, a lake, or a coast, for movement, for like forms, for like how shapes are made, but like in kind of like a over geological time. And so government buildings, bodies of water, in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Priorities. Yeah. I relate to the knowledge that being physically out and about at a site in a manner that is mindfully investigative rather than sightseeing is, is a kind of labor. I mean, you're trying to think of everything you know about a site. You're trying to bring to a site knowledge you have from other places or other sources. Yeah, the bar is important. <laughs> so... In, in a lot of your work, especially between Starshine and Clay, the, the work at the Hammer, and in other works like Sentient Ruins, heads are important, faces are important, but they are often dwarfed by the rest of the sculpture in, in that the heads seem smaller than they would be, you know, at human scale in regards to the rest of the work. And, and they're really dwarfed by, by the entirety of an installation. What work do you think of those heads as doing within your work, especially, I guess, in, in the work at the Hammer? Heads in my sculptures and sculpture installations are often the only or most recognizable figurative element in the works. And those are important to me because they articulate the relationship between a body or a figure and these other like non-human, non-figurative, abstracted forms that I'm arguing or articulating like have a relationship. Be they like, you know, earth and like thinking about people and humans and myself having a relationship, like kind of destabilizing or dissolving that imagined boundary between like human nature by like inserting like a head into an otherwise but like, figurative element into an otherwise like abstracted form. In the case of the hammer to be specific, I was inspired by like cosmic forms. Like I was thinking about like a body, like a cosmic body, a planet if you will, like imploding or like or dissipating or being suspended in gravity. And so the abstracted form, or the, the main form of that, of between Starshine and Clay, sort of takes up the shape of a sphere composed of all these kind of rock-like elements. And then at the top, 
of the cosmic body is a head and also arms uh, or hands rather. And so I often insert a face, a head into these sort of other forms to try and articulate a relationship, I guess, between or to suggest that in the case of the between Starshine and Clay also. So my approach to figuration or using figurative elements in my work draws on an aesthetic practice that queer studies scholar Jack Halberstam, who is my mentor in grad school, describes and observes amongst contemporary trans artists in this sort of visual language or aesthetic practice involves figuring a body beyond like the language of realism or figuration, but approaching and thinking about the body as fragments that are built and unbuilt and that constitute a sort of larger constellation, if you will. And so in Between Starshine and Clay, I see these sort of fragments of earth rock-like forms as a way of like building and unbuilding a body. And so including the figurative element, in this case, a head and arms, are ways to suggest or like get a viewer to like, you know, to suggest that this form could be read as a figure. You know, I, one of the things that's interesting about that is I had in my notes to ask you if the heads or the figures, and to be clear, and we'll have images on manpodcast.com, of course, you're suggesting figure more than you are filling it in. Exactly. Are, are the heads or the figures, so to speak, do you think of them as being gendered? So I don't think of the heads or the figures as being gendered. And part of my approach to like including figures of elements is specifically like excluding parts of the body through which we read or embed through which gender is like embedded. So like genitalia, breasts, like those, the, the sort of body parts that we encode and read gender on don't show up in my work. So I do not think of my, the figures that I make or the sculptures that I make as gendered or the heads as being gendered. And part of the reason why I don't make like fully realized forms or figures, but I include like fragments of figurative elements amongst like more sort of abstracted compositions and forms is my way of trying to sort of circumvent including elements of the body through which we read gender on. The other major work you have on view right now in the United States is a work called Ruins of Empire. It's on view in Brooklyn Bridge Park as part of a public art fund exhibition for people who don't live in New York or who live outside the U.S. Brooklyn Bridge Park is, of course, well, maybe not of course, but it's on the Brooklyn side and it faces almost due west, which means that it often provides a spectacular view of the Statue of Liberty. So this line of sight sets up a 
conversation about the 19th century between your work and, and, and you know, the, the, the Statue of Liberty. So this is all kinds of fun for a 19th century history nerd like me. So let's start with Ruins of Empire. It's informed by a sculpture Thomas Crawford started in 1855 that would eventually be installed atop the U.S. Capitol Dome. It's, it's there now. And a plaster version of it or a plaster model for it is in the U.S. Capitol Visitors Center. I love Crawford. He's hugely important in American art history and in the development of the idea of the American nation, but he's massively underknown, even by art history nerds. How and why did you come to consider or care about this work of his several hundred feet off the ground? <laughs> so I first encountered the Statue of Freedom over a decade ago. So let me, let me jump in really quick. A decade ago, it was a sculpture much easier to see than it is now as we are recording this in the summer of 2022. There are all kinds of barricades and, and, and difficulties to accessing the site now that were not in place a decade ago. Absolutely. When I was in high school, I was a page for the House of Representatives. Oh my gosh. And so I spent six months of my junior year in high school in Washington, D.C., essentially as like a internal mail delivery system for Congress people. But I had this really, I got, had this really intimate experience in the U.S. Capitol building. I worked there every day. I spent so many hours, you know, in the halls of the building. But as a page, I had one of my jobs was to raise and lower the flag above the Capitol building at the beginning and at the end of each congressional session. And that gave me, that put me both in like physical proximity to a lot of the sort of symbols of American democracy, including the Statue of Freedom. So I recall being a teenager and both going on a tour of the Capitol building and going up to that highest rotunda and, you know, having my first kind of close up look at the, the statue and then also having a view of it as I was raising and lowering the flag. And that was my first really like, that was my first close encounter with Statue of Freedom. But it wasn't until years later that I would revisit those experiences in order to like reflect on both my relationship to American nationalism, but also more broadly in my creative practice as I was like unearthing and engaging some of the foundational myths around which the country is built the Statue of Freedom became such a potent and rich symbol to, to, to work with and to engage. Part of what compelled me to the Statue of Freedom as a symbol to appropriate and work with is the kind of, again, the kind of subterranean, the counter story that is around that surrounds how the statue was built. So Thomas Crawford, you know, is the artist who designed and, you know, is attributed to making the sculpture. 
but there were many enslaved laborers involved in the fabrication of the sculpture. One of them being an artisan named Philip Reed. Philip Reed was a really skilled artisan and sculptor. I believe that Reed was enslaved by by the by the sculptor whose foundry casted the Statue of Freedom, but the idea that the Statue of Freedom was fabricated in part using enslaved labor, for me, underlies some of the inherent, you know, contradictions of how freedom is thought of and was constructed within the American project. And one of the sort of underlying sort of, I think, notions that I'm always returning to and unearthing and getting at. And so those were all the reasons why freedom became, or freedom, like, you know, fascinated me as a symbol of American democracy. One of the things about your ruins of empire that stands out to me is, you know, it's, it's 10 or 11 feet tall and you have, you know, your, your, your sculpture kind of ends, it's not full length, like the Crawford on the top of the U.S. Capitol. It kind of cuts off where the figures, you know, maybe a little bit above where the figure's waist would be. And one of the effects of that is that you, at least to my reading of it, which admittedly is via JPEG, is that you, you, you kind of deny the figure the gender that Crawford gave his. Was that intentional? Or, or am, I, am I reading in something that isn't there? No, absolutely. You know, that's a reading that I haven't, it hasn't come up often in my public conversations around the work. So I'm very excited to think about this. I don't necessarily have a, will land that or arrive at a sort of conclusion. But I think that is part of the ruination of, like, my translation of the work is ruining the gender of the work. But interestingly enough, when I was fabricate, when I was sculpting and modeling the piece, one area that I continued to return to around how should I shape it was the breast of the sculpture. And I ultimately like de-emphasized the shape of the bust, so it's not like a one-to-one recreation of the actual sculpture. But part of that was from a conversation that I was having with a, a colleague and a friend was that I specifically, that my choice in doing that and like rendering the bust in a certain way was to kind of stage a, an intervention on the gender of the, the, the final, like my version of the statue. One of the reasons I thought of it is because of the proximity of Frederick Auguste Bartholdi's Statue of Liberty, which which I mentioned can be seen from Brooklyn Bridge Park. Were you interested in a potential art historical or other relationship between the two allegorical, originally female figures? Absolutely. I specifically cited the project because I wanted that conversation between the both statues, monuments, to be present, or like that was an important part of the project. 
And I specifically, like when I conceived of the project and was invited to the exhibition, I chose to do this specific project, which, you know, was kind of in a list of many projects that I sort of am working on and plan to realize, but specifically because it would be, it would have and be in conversation with the Statue of Liberty. And for me, part of it is also, you know, thinking about engaging in a conversation about public art and monumentalism, which continues to be, you know, a really, a really fervent conversation within the U.S. But from the vantage point of the park, when you look at my kind of earthen, sunken statue, and then in a sight line, immediately you see, you know, the kind of figure of the sort of proper, patina, monumental Statue of Liberty in a distance. Through that sort of relationship, you see like what emerges in my translation. And for me, what is important that comes through in that translation is like one that, you know, ruins of empires on the ground in prox close proximity to the public. So like people really can get close to it in ways that, you know, you can't get to the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Freedom on top of the Capitol building, or even like the Statue of Liberty, because it's just kind of so towering and on a really high pedestal. You can go inside of it, but you can't like be next to it, if, if that makes sense. Or like It totally, I, I remember the experience from years ago, and that's exactly how I remember it. So I think that makes total sense. <laughs> Again, yeah, the relation, the placement and the relationship within the sightline of the Statue of Liberty was really important to me because it really sort of articulates how I'm engaging with sort of tradition of, you know, monumentalism within the United States. There are a bunch of things that come to mind as a history nerd that I want to try and tie up in a couple sentences here. The painted terracotta and tin model for Bartholdi's Statue of Liberty used to be in the collection of the U.S. Capitol. The Capitol transferred it to the Smithsonian American Art Museum some years ago, and for the first time in a long time, first time I can remember in decades, it's on view right now at SAM in downtown Washington. You mentioned a moment ago the role of enslaved labor in making, forging Crawford's statue, his sculpture. I wanted to also note that enslaved labor helped build the Capitol itself, including quarrying the stone used for its floors, its walls for the uh, the columns in the front and at the back of the Capitol. Enslaved people also sawed uh, wood used in the building of the structure, and almost certainly enslaved labor was involved in brick making and laying in the Capitol, um, and probably carpentry too. One, one of the reasons all that interests me, other than the obvious, I suppose, is that um, I wrote a little bit once upon a time about one of California's first U.S. senators, a guy named David Broderick, who's the son of Irish immigrants. And his father was one of the Masons who built the steps leading up to the Capitol. Because of the way whiteness was constructed in the 19th century, there were pathways for David Broderick's father to achieve citizenship that were denied the black laborers who were every bit as involved in the construction of the Capitol. And so when I see the plaster model or the piece atop the Capitol Dome, the Crawford atop the Dome, or your work, or think of them in, the, in relation to each other, that all comes kind of rushing forward. 
You mentioned a few minutes ago that you worked in the Capitol. I, we've had a whole lot of artists on this show in the, over the years, and I don't think I've ever heard, had, had heard one of them have, have that experience. In 2021, so I guess last year, you made a work called Twice Fried Flag or Double Fried Flag. Was that piece informed by your experience working in the Capitol, or am I overreading one flag to another? <laughs> oh, absolutely. The flags that I use in that work were previously flown over the Capitol building, and the the whole reason why, how I knew how to like obtain flags that were flown over the Capitol building previously is that when I worked for the House of Representatives, one of my jobs was would be to deliver these previously flown flags to the offices of Congress people who would then ship them out to constituents who purchased them as memorabilia. And so there's absolutely a connection. And part of that connection is, you know, me engaging in like a different ritual, if you will, or a different, like a different practice around my relationship to the flag from like, you know, having engaged in this very patriotic gesture and ritual of raising and lowering it, you know, every day during the beginning of congressional sessions to frying it and cooking it and battering it and engaging it in a very different way. When that, a gesture that I approach with like both kind of humor, but also like it's kind of subversive approach as a way to like articulate a different relationship to you know nationalism two more two more things i also wanted to talk about a work of yours called reaching towards warmer suns which is a work you installed in richmond virginia along the james james river which runs through more or less downtown richmond and it's a site that was a colonial era slave dock of major historical import and not only of major historical import to virginia but to massachusetts too. And and that's a work that involves dirt and nature in ways that we've talked about already, but it's also a work that engages time and the passage of time, maybe in a way that's different than, than some of your more recent work. And, and I wonder if including within your work the action of time, whether that's important to you and whether the importance of the action of time is, has changed or is changing within your practice. Time is so significant. I mean, I think about time in my work, but what I try and articulate is like, you know, time is just really collapsed, that history isn't linear or always like progressivist, but that, you know, the past is always sort of animated in the present, gesturing towards like the future. I think that past, present, future are always collapsed in a lot of my work, which is why, you know, the idea of like a ruin is really exciting for me because it exists at that kind of paradox where like it speaks to us is an object that remembers a past that has since gone and no longer exists in the present, but it also has this kind of element of futurity to it as in it's becoming something else and it's still actively like ongoing or engaged in like processes of transformation. And so, yeah, I think about time a lot. And I specifically think about, again, I'm like, the work is always thinking about taking and 
unearthing and excavating the past that informs the present as a way to like gesture towards or cultivate, you know, an otherwise reality. So be that like a future or like using those, the past and the present to forge an otherwise future. The last thing I wanted to ask is not something that had been in my notes originally, just to kind of peel back the curtain a bit. Keon and I were scheduled to talk many weeks ago and events got in the way. And in that interceding time, I've been doing research at a number of state capitals around the country, Virginia, Massachusetts, a few others. And one of the things that's really struck out to me about the art programs, the commemoration programs, sometimes that's architectural, sometimes that's artistic, sometimes that's decorative, you know, of, of places like the Virginia and Massachusetts state houses is that they are sites of acute erasure. They are sites that completely fail to acknowledge black labor and the black experience within the construction of the state or the American nation. And as I got to thinking about your work after having these really intense experience in those state capitals, I got to thinking about how in almost every project you manifest, the black role in the construction, the physical construction of the American nation is present. Do you think of that as being a core interest of your work as something you're trying to bring forward? Or is it simply coincident given that you are very good at taking on national sites, sites such as in Richmond, such as in Washington, D.C., such as New York Harbor? I mean, I think it's both. I do think that part of my approach to art making is trying to stage certain types of interventions through the artworks that I'm creating. Sometimes I'm intervening on things like, you know, historical erasure. And I think that art is uniquely able to to do that in ways that other forms of cultural production, or to do that in tandem with other forms of cultural production. But in my creative practice, I think I get to engage in this type of intervention and in ways that are perhaps more immediately accessible to people who may not be seeking, you know, that out. In the case of like have making public artworks. And I also think that it allows me to like cultivate a visual language through my relationship with materials, through like the forms that I'm creating that open up that conversation and 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 in different ways. But I do think those are like some core ideas that undergird my recent body of work. But I guess the addendum to the last question is that, like I don't think of the practice as commemorative in the ways that like a monument is, like a monument to a person or place is. Like I'm not making monuments of historical figures as a way to remember them. But I think that I am interested in like staging public intervention at sites to create a different kind of experience with the landscape and with an audience than what might exist and would be articulated through traditional means of commemoration or 
which sometimes tend to be like overly progressivist and and are built to like reinscribe the the power of the state. Keon Williams, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Such a joy. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego reopens in La Jolla on Saturday, April 9th, with the special exhibition Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s. The exhibition explores a transformative 10-year period in Saint-Fall's work when she embarked on two of her most significant series, the tears, or shooting paintings, and the exuberant sculptures of women she called nanas. Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s is co-curated and co-organized by Jill Dawsey, Senior Curator, Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and Michelle White, Senior Curator, the Menil Collection, Houston. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash Leandro Ehrlich. Welcome back. Next up, my October 2021 conversation with Monument Lab director Paul M. Farber. We talk about Monument Lab's National Monument Audit, which Farber co-directed with Lori Allen and Sue Mobley. In addition to the project website, there's a link on manpodcast.com, Monument Lab offers a free PDF of the audit. This week, Monument Lab's Future Memory podcast returned. See manpodcast.com for information on the program and for a link that takes you to a subscription page. Paul Farber, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here again with you. Because conventional monuments are often viewed as one-offs, solitary symbols in a single location, it can be difficult to consider them as a set of linked symbols, linked sites, and stories that exist across jurisdictions. So when in a survey like this you consider monuments across a nation, what particularly stands out? Well, I think first, you know, just to say, you know, the goal of this audit which was produced by Monument Lab and in partnership with the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, was to get a sense of the overarching themes, to look at how across generations our monument landscape has come to its current status and condition. One of the biggest hurdles that we had, I think, is a, is a common misconception that there is some central government agency in charge of all of our monuments, or at least some list that would give us all the information that we would need. And that would include the names of monuments, the dates they were installed, you know, to whom and to what they're dedicated. And 
you know, that's the, the opposite of the truth of what we encountered, which is that monuments, as we understand them, despite their centrality in our cultural consciousness and our cities and towns and in physical ways, they're elusive. There isn't a common definition of monument. So for the purposes of our audit, which was meant to be overarching and also timely, we went to look at existing data sources from federal, state, local, tribal, and publicly assembled sources. And with our research team, build algorithms and a rigorous process to from those other data sets that were gathering historic properties that include conventional monuments, but aren't primarily or even exclusively listing them, to pull from there an understanding of the monument landscape. And, and once we're able to do that, of course, you know, our findings included things that we've heard anecdotally, if not systemically, from artists and activists over the years. But with this study set, the study set of nearly 50,000 conventional monuments pulled from the data sources we use from our audit, you actually are able to see some deeper understandings and the ways that monuments connect or disconnect from history and the politics of today. What were the trends or findings that stood out most to you? So our key findings were monuments have always changed. The monument landscape is overwhelmingly white and male. The most common features of American monuments reflect war and conquest. And the story of the United States as told by our current monuments misrepresents our history. I think when we started this work, we really wanted to be able to gather a study set and ask questions of it. You know, our values as Monument Lab, as a nonprofit public art and history studio have been centered around, you know, the approaches to monuments driven by artists, driven by communities, really thinking about monuments as not frozen in time, but alive. But also one of our values is asking questions. And so for us, what was really important was to be able to have a study set and query it as much as possible. And once we did that, what really stood out to us were the kinds of connections that can be made with data and also the gaps in data that have made reckoning with our monument landscape so difficult because we're talking about something that we're acutely feeling in present, but that has been building for generations, building in hyper-local ways and in national and transnational ones as well. I think one of the things that really, for me, really was eye-opening, and I know for our team felt similar things, is, is this last point, the idea that our monuments have misrepresented our history. You know, I think for a long time we've known that monuments tell a slice of the story of a place. But when, you know, we queried in our study set the nearly 6,000 mentions of the Civil War in monument records. So that could include the title of the monument, that it could include metadata, sometimes information um, in the plaque. Of those 6,000, 1% mentioned slavery. And that's just a mention of slavery. That's not necessarily telling us whether that account is full or true, or we're hearing the voices of formerly enslaved people and Black Civil War soldiers fighting for the Union and um, self-emancipating themselves. That's just a mention. You know, when we look at the look at the study set, we see that 15 
85% of pioneer monuments, those that mention pioneer, even have a reference to Native American, Indigenous, or Indian. And that is not including pejorative terms. And that, of course, is not the full accounting of the story because we also know that over half of those monuments were dedicated after 1930, which is coinciding with a Hollywood pop culturalization of the so-called Wild West and the frontier, and after armed conflict and land dispossession of many indigenous communities. And you start to see that, you know, on one hand, we have, of course, places where monuments, conventional ones, where we have conventional monuments that are giving us a glimpse into history, but we also get a sense of the, the distortions so that, of course, it can be profound when a single monument is added or taken away that responds to harm. You can see that that can be catalyzing for a community. But we also have to think about this large-scale storytelling that intersects with so many other spheres of our society and education and politics and other kind of resourcing. And you, you realize that the work is timely and generational to respond. One of Monuments Lab's findings, as you mentioned a moment ago, is that the monument landscape is overwhelmingly white. One of the things I thought of as I looked down your list of the top 50 individuals represented in the monument landscape is that the monument landscape surely contributed to the construction and expansion of whiteness in the United States, of who gets the full benefits of citizenship. I think the list shows new national groups being welcomed into full American citizenship by coming to be understood as white. So I'm thinking of uh, Christopher Columbus, who's number three on your list with a hundred and, this is where I put my glasses on, 149? Is that a nine? <laughs> Monuments? St. Francis of Assisi, Pulaski, Thaddeus Kushkushko was kind of the, I don't know, founder is the right word, but the, 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 the guy who helped form key units during the American Revolution, Robert Burns, the poet. Did you, in doing this audit, think about how monuments such of these would have worked on the nation and still work on the nation? Or is, is that beyond the scope of this part of the project? I really appreciate your line of thinking here. And this was something that jumped out to us from the beginning. And, you know, something I just want to say about the top 50 list in, in part why it exists in this audit, you know, this is to be clear the audit is not a tally of everything that could be considered a monument in this country. It is indexing records that exist from 42 data sources run through a rigorous process from our research team. I want to give a big shout out to co-directors Sue Mobley and Lori Allen, our lead data artist Brian Fu, and the team of researchers whose credits are in the audit and just really made it possible to do this work. When we were gathering our data sources, of course, we're asking questions today about race and gender. We were looking to understand what appeared like an overwhelming whiteness, maleness, straightness, kind of elite status of many of the monuments. And when we have gathered together in the study set, that's ostensibly what we found. But I think one thing to note is that in the past, the kinds of questions that may have been important to previous generations of people who are keeping monument records didn't always reflect these same lines of inquiry. For example, 
of the 42 data sources that we gathered, six of them only even considered race or gender. And that just means that there was a place where there's some accounting for those demographics. But even in those six data sources, when given the option, those previous researchers generally left that information and that metadata blank. To really think about this from both a past and present lens, it's difficult on one hand to attribute categories post-haste, but incredibly important to understand how power is constructed and how these figures have been put out across the landscape in repetition throughout the country. So what what we ended up doing was cross-referencing as much data as we could, streamlining data sources, and also bringing in biographical sources in order to be able to make statements about the monument landscape, focusing on the top 50 so that we could, from our study, our account, hone in on a group of people to give us insights about that. Again, not just the one-offs, but the way that particular figures are repeated across the landscape. And when we did that, you know, it, it was profound to see. It was profound to see that of the top 50, 44 would be considered white men today. That of that 44, 50% were enslavers. And just to look at a list where there were four Confederate serving figures and three Black Americans, you know, you, you do get a sense of the story that that activists and artists and educators have been drawing attention to for the last few years, if not for a generation or more. And, you know, on top of that, I think the point that you make is important that, you know, in our data, what groups that we would now think of as white, ethnic groups that have gained status with white privilege, do have a, a, a myriad number of ways that they've been described specifically from their context outside of the United States and sometimes within. Also in the framework of settler colonialism, which is deeply a part of the monument landscape as well. When you zoom out and look at the trends across this, you do get a sense that, you know, that we have major gaps in our monument landscape. You mentioned a couple stats there, so I'll, I'll interject two of my favorite stats. One is that nine of the top 50 monumented Americans were involved in the forced dispossession of Native Americans or in governmental failures to fulfill treated obligations to Native people. Real quick, the list is Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson Davis, Andrew Jackson, John Marshall, Daniel Boone, John Logan, and George Rogers Clark. And my other favorite stat, and this one's yours, this one I, I lifted right from, <laughs> from the audit, is that within your study set, this is going to sound like a joke, it's totally not, there are more recorded monuments depicting mermaids, 22, then there are monuments to U.S. Congresswomen, just two, one to Barbara Jordan of Texas and one monument celebrating Millicent Fenwick of New Jersey. The, the more time I spent looking at the list of people, the more time I spent realizing that a number of these monuments I could personally recall in, in, in my mind's eye. So you define a monument as, quote, a statement of power and presence in public a definition that could also work pretty well for, say, painted portraits or portrait sculpture. 
did you or will you consider whether artistic merit or import was or might be important in terms of how a monument might be received? The audit is a tool. The data is available online. You can, you know, not only search the study set, you can, you know, see through our documentation guide and our GitHub how we've done it. And we hope that other people build on it because we know that we have built on data from other sources, whether organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Smithsonian's Save Our Outdoor Sculpture, Renee Atter's work, the Pioneer Monuments database, and, and the full list is, of course, on our website. I think that what stood out to us about the two, two statistics that you pulled out, I mean, one is that the relationship between monuments and land is profound in our country. Putting down a monument to a history that is distorted is akin to putting a flag in land that you claim as your own through domineering tactics. And so I think it's really one of the things that jumped out to our team was the ways that when you start to look at the monument landscape through that framework of, of settler colonialism, land displacement, armed conflict, you see the ways that we have been underserved by our monuments. History doesn't live inside of them, but they're held to often different standards than other forms of historical telling and that they can be powerful means, but they, they're communicating to us whether they're in the spotlight or fading into the background. Likewise, in our study, it was much easier to find in symbolic and allegorical women than it was historic ones. That, again, is something that we've seen in our own city in Philadelphia and other ones that we've worked in and visited. And, you know, surely as we looked in it, there are other monuments that may not have been in our study set dedicated to U.S. Congresswomen. And there were definitely mermaids that we missed. And based on our records, we missed more monuments. And I will tell you just anecdotally, I've been in three states in the last several weeks. In each of them, I've seen mermaid statues or streets. I think the other thing I just want to note about that, because we've you know, it's now, I think it's become a shorthand, which is really interesting from our from our audit, because I think it registers. Once you once you picture it and see it, you can't unsee it. You, it, it. It makes sense. But I also think there's something to be gained here. We've gotten a lot of questions about the statistic. And I, I think that there's a reason why. I mean, I, I actually sense that we've gotten more questions about mermaids than we have about systemic racism or land dispossession. And I think it, it, in a way, it just reminds us that it's been, not only has it been much easier for monuments to mermaids to exist than to those of historic civically empowered women, but also that that is a, a place to go and a landing place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what stories have been repeated across space and across time? And how do we then intervene beyond the simple keep it up or take it down or what do we do? Because there's so many multi-layered responses that are possible that, that we hope this, this audit can open up and, and continue. Speaking of mermaids, did you find a way to consider similarly or more broadly abstract monuments? Monuments that may include, forgive me, actual people, but not specific named people, or maybe just 
works of abstraction like the St. Louis Gateway Arch, which was part of a monument to westward expansionism? Yes, this was a question that we had because not all monuments are are figural. I think that's the kind of quickest shorthand, but truly across our country, there are many other monumental forms. One of the challenges that any audit of the monument landscape will have is how do you parse out, even in a single structure, the features? Like, for example, if you're looking at a fountain that has 12 statues, has a plaque, has something brass inlaid, maybe a marker, like, is that multiple sites or is that one? Do you treat it from the point of view of the person who's dedicated it, or do you treat it from the point of view of the people who are stewarding it? Sometimes there are multiple jurisdictions that might even govern over one civic site. So from, from what, we, what we did, though, was tried to gather from existing data both how local stewards and record keepers indicated their own sites, and also we ran our algorithm to be able to um, account for that. So for example, you can see this on our study set. There were over 12,000 of, of the nearly 50,000 are considered statue, 9,000 considered sculpture, 4, 000, over 4,000 considered bust. Um, but we also have 490 bells, 337 obelisks, 305 arches. And there's a number of other categories here. And, and I do want to say the largest category is uncategorized. So abstract monuments, um, symbolic structures do fit in here. And again, this is a study set. So this will not include every single thing that we may consider a monument or is not a monument, but it really was from the records that existed. There's more to say and, of course, explore about the most – for us, one of the interesting lines is that what about things that may have not been stewarded or dedicated or cared for as – official monuments, but are treated like them nonetheless in local communities. And that is something that we've tried to gesture to in a accompanying essay series on our website called The Changing Monument Landscape, where we've had essays from people like Mural Arts Philadelphia, LGBT Historic Sites New York, the George Floyd Street Art Database, and several others. That's, that's for us something that we're eager to see how other people will continue to map as well. You all define monument as, quote, a statement of power and presence in public, which is a definition that seems to me could also work for painted portraits or portrait sculpture in, you know, non-outdoors contexts, if you will. Did you consider whether artistic merit or artistic import was or might be important in terms of how a monument might be received or cared for? So, yeah, so our, our definition for Monument Lab of a monument is a statement of power and presence in public. And that's a definition that we've come up with over the course of the last decade in conversation with tens of thousands of people in you know, projects around the country. And part of the reason that we came up with that, and this is something that the audit affirmed, is that there is no central definition of a monument. Sometimes when we say monument, of course, we're thinking about statues and sculptures installed on high with bronze and marble, but the word monument also tracks ecological landscapes and historic sites and the projections and poetry and sometimes protests, even the term unintentional monument. There are places where a closed school or factory may actually be serving a purpose beyond its original intent. And so that definition 
has allowed us to explore with our collaborators, with artists, with educators, the new emergent landscape of memory in our country. But for the purposes of this data project, which we needed to put a definition into a computer, into a data system, it doesn't cut it. And so what we did was, first of all, develop an algor- the, the multiple algorithms. And our team kind of, we, I saw a video of the algorithm. It's like a, a 40 plus second fast track. It's like you're reading it, you know, almost like text in, in the Matrix or a hacker movie. And you're seeing all of the different rules that go through. And so for the purposes of the audit, what we were looking for were statues or monoliths installed with the authority of a municipality or an institution. And I think just to be clear, you know, we recognize that on one hand, that's not how we broadly think of monuments, inclusive of portraiture, inclusive of architecture. But for the purposes of this study, we wanted to say something about those objects that we conventionally call monuments that, that you know have the aura of permanence. They are not permanent. They require maintenance money and mindsets to keep them up. But it was for the purpose of the study. And the hope is that others will follow suit. And you know, even one of the our collaborators at MIT's Data Plus Feminism Lab, which wrote a really powerful essay for our, for that changing monument landscape series have been really interested in street names, for example. And so I, I, I think that, you know, our hope is that people will connect this with other adjacent projects so that you start to see how the memorial landscape doesn't just involve bronze, marble, stone, but is also in cahoots with other forms of recognition and esteem. I'm particularly interested in that one, as I've argued in book form that to a significant significant extent, the preservation of Yosemite and the invention of the National Park happened as a, as a monument and indeed as a memorial to Thomas Starr King. As, as, as we wrap up, what is next for Monument Lab, either in terms of the next stage of its broad project or specifically for this data set? So we are, we just launched the audit um, in partnership with Mellon, and we want it to be utilized as a tool. We went through a, a series of data workshops, an educator's roundtable. There's an educator's guide on our website, and we're really interested in how people will use this data, build on it. And I have to say, every time we've had a public event, I'm hearing from folks who are working locally, sometimes even working on a state or federal level. And they're eager to be able to hop in. And I think there's a lot of work coalitionally that can happen when we start to think together in these ways. In a way, fascinating and meaningful thing that we've seen so far is that a state legislator in Pennsylvania, Representative Chris Rabb, just proposed legislation removing Columbus Day as a holiday and replacing it with Election Day. And in his proposed legislation, he cites the National Monument Audit. And for us, that's incredible impact. It is important when the monument, National Monument Audit can inform decisions about statues and plaques and historic properties. When we also connect it to systems of power and hopefully more systems of access, it really takes flight. And that's really our hope. And then finally, we're on the verge of launching the largest project that we've ever done, Regeneration 
which is a national campaign and exhibition, which will be funding 10 local field office sites around the country in the spring and summer of 2022. We'll be announcing those teams next month, and we're really excited to to do so. And, And I'll say we did an open call to curate this over the summer, and we put out that open call right around the time we were finishing up our audit and thinking a lot about the monuments that we've inherited and also the monuments that are emerging now. And that open call received over 200 applications from every U.S. state, nearly every territory, from cross-border collectives, from tribal communities. You know, we're we're really thrilled and energized to have the next stage of Monument Lab's work be really working in tandem and in coalition in regions around the country so that we understand from and learn from local memory keepers. Where, where knowledge and wisdom sits with them and their, their communities while also building strategy, tactic, momentum across the country as well and beyond. I love it. I hope historians dig in to build from the data understandings of how America's history has been presented and indeed how the idea of the American nation has been formed. Paul Farber, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.